But Bill's going to be talking about the history of socialism and how it lines up with what is going on right now in America. And so, with no further ado, our friend, Bill Federer. Please welcome Bill. All right. Thank you, Pastor Rick. Thank you. Well, God bless you. Well, with that, I'm going to get into my talk. So I wrote a book called Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present, subtitle, How the Deep State Capitalizes on Crises to Consolidate Control. And it goes back to Plato, 380 BC, lives in Athens, and he writes in passing of Atlantis, this highly structured civilization on an island that sinks in the ocean. Now, whether it existed or not, I don't know, but um, there is an island in the Mediterranean called Santorini, and it's the remnant of a volcano, and I visited it in college. It's pretty nice. Uh, but it would have sent a tsunami across the entire Mediterranean, wiping out lots of civilizations. But whether Atlantis existed or not, Plato thought it did, and he thought it was the ideal structured society. And Plato considered democracy an unstructured society. Demos means people, crossing means rule, and the chief characteristic of a democracy is tolerance. Everyone tolerates each other. It's wonderful. And then they tolerate people that are a little bit off. And then they tolerate people that are a lot off. Till finally they're tolerating lawlessness. And it turns into rioting in the streets and chaos. And out of this chaos, the people begin to clamor for someone to come along and fix this mess. And that's when some governor comes along and he says, I can fix it. I just need some emergency powers. Yeah. <laughs> right? And um, this is what Plato said. He goes, last of all comes the tyrant. When he first appears above ground, he's a protector full of smiles. Uh, if any are suspected of resistance to his authority, he'll have a pretext of destroying them. And the protector standing up in the chariot of state with the reins in his hand, a tyrant absolute. And so this is the model. Now, Plato, interestingly enough, said democracy is doomed to fail because it's based on the people having virtue. And if you give people a choice of giving up their life or giving up their virtue, they'll always give up their virtue to save their life. Now, ancient Israel's attempt lasted a little longer because they had a big magnet in the sky called God. Right? So you were virtuous because you were accountable to God. Athens did not have that. By Plato's time, Athens had a bunch of fickle deities that nobody believed in anyway. And so Plato even said, if someone was born that truly had virtue, the world would crucify him. This is what he writes in 380 BC. If a truly just man lived, let him die as he lived. I might add that the just man will be scourged, racked, bound, and will at last be crucified. Can you imagine that? 380 BC. Anyway, so Plato said, since democracy is doomed to fail, the best you can hope for is a nice tyrant. <laughs> he called them a philosopher king, right? So he's like the governor, and he's the head of gold. And his administrators are the deep state arms and chest of silver. Together, they make up the ruling class. And everyone else is the abdomen of iron and bronze. They are the ruled class. So socialism is a structured society with a ruling class and a ruled class. Now, the ruling class, they're above the law. They're politically connected. They're supported by the commoners. They can do special things, like getting their hair styled when nobody else can. <laughs> now, the ruled class, 
Yes, everyone is provided for, but no one owns any property. There are no families. The government decides who gets to have kids. And the government takes the children away from the parents, brings them into the schools where they're socialized. What's that? That's a process of them learning how to give up their values and just serve the ruling class. And so Plato said that in this structured society, when true philosopher kings are born in a state, they will set in order, right? That's the structure, their own city. They will take possession of the children who will be unaffected by the habits of their parents. These they will train in their own habits and laws. And so these kids will be taught noble lies. Plato said, we want one single grand lie, which will be believed by everybody. Could you imagine the government taking the kids away and teaching them lies? And Anyway, so uh, democracies and republics are the people ruling themselves. So they take the power of the king and they give the power to the people. Uh, the difference between a democracy and a republic is a democracy, every citizen has to be at every meeting every day to talk about every issue. It's very time-consuming, and if you don't show up for a couple days, you're called an idiotus, right? An idiot. Um, a republic is where you take care of your family and your farm, and you have someone in your place that goes to the market every day and talks politics. They are your representative. So easy way to remember is REP and republic is the same REP and representative. Now, but what if you're a king, and you want to take the power away from the people and reconcentrate it? How do you do that? Two ways. Fear and free stuff. And so if, you, if people are in fear, they will trade freedom for security. And people like free stuff, they'll trade their freedom for dependency. And so uh, the, the Bible actually talks about the fear of man bringeth a snare. So when you're afraid of something, right, that's a trap. And then free stuff, it says every man, when he is tempted, he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. So to bring this home, a drug dealer can take over a neighborhood two ways. He can come in with guns and shoot people and bring panic and fear. And when people are fearful, they surrender to the gang, the mob, and they pay extortion protection money or whatever. But the drug dealer can also come in and give away free drugs and get everybody hooked. And once they're hooked, he says, do you want some more drugs? Uh, you're going to have to sell yourself into prostitution. You're going to have to steal from your neighbor. You're going to have to do all this stuff, right? And people, because they're hooked, they want it. It's sort of like uh, hunting. Hunters can use guns or bait, right? They can use the... And so you can, uh, all right, go out there with Elmer Fudd with the gun, or he gets the bait with the carrots. And anyway, so... Since we have this observable phenomenon that when people are fearful, they'll trade their freedom for security, and uh, you've seen ambitious big government politicians uh, through history will create or capitalize on discord and chaos to create an atmosphere of fear so that then they can come along and promise a solution of free stuff, and then the power goes from the people back into the hands of the, the dictator. A uh, couple scriptures. Proverbs 1.33 says, How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Everybody say unity. unity. And then Proverbs 6 is the other. It says the six things the Lord hates, and the last is he that soweth discord. Everybody say discord. And so we see this model. Could you imagine being in heaven and somebody sowing discord? And that's what Lucifer did, right? 
Here he is in heaven, and he gets a third of the angels to get all upset, and they get cast out. Well, now we're going to look at a story in the Bible. Gideon had just defeated 100,000 Midianites. And so there's peace. There's no threat, but he has an illegitimate son named Abimelech. And Abimelech sows discord. He goes to this town called Shechem, and he does identity race politics. He says, is it better for you that all the sons of Gideon reign over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And the brethren spake in his ears and said, well, we have to vote for him because he is our brother, right? So he's doing this identity politics, and what does he do? Abimelech goes to the temple of Baal-berith and takes 70 pieces of silver to hire protesters, like, like Antifa crowd, right? And they commit violence, and they kill all the sons of Gideon. And uh, then uh, the Abimelech uh, makes himself king there, right? And so this is the idea. He's peaceful. He goes in there and he stirs up this identity politics. He causes division and discord, takes money and hires rioters. And when they get the violence, then he usurps power and makes himself king. Now, Israel's republic would have ended there 100 years before Saul had not somebody thrown a millstone over a wall and it killed Abimelech. Anyway, that's what happened to him. <laughs> now, let's fast forward to another story, Machiavelli. He lived in Italy 500 years ago. And Italy was not Italy back then. It was a bunch of city-states, Venice, Genoa, Naples, Florence, Siena, and they all fought. And Machiavelli thought if one prince could control all of these city-states, there would be peace. So his end was good. And so he said the end justifies the means. So if your end is good, you can do anything to achieve it. Lie, cheat, steal. And so the attitude was, if a prince wants to conquer a city in his quest to unify Italy, and the city does not want to be conquered, they would hate him. But if the prince pays criminals to kill cows, burn barns, create crisis, like Abimelech took money and hired vain and worthless persons to riot, then the people would panic, and they'd be in fear, and they would cry out for help, and the prince would come in and get rid of the rioters that he had paid in the first place. Nobody would know the better for it, and everyone would praise the prince as a hero. So it's good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house and set it on fire. Then you go around the front of the house and sell them a fire extinguisher. And they'll pay anything for it and even thank you for being there. So it's called Machiavellianism, where you create or capitalize on a crisis to consolidate control. You know that quote a little bit better like this. Uh, Rahm Emanuel said, you don't ever want a crisis to go to waste. It is an opportunity to do important things that you would otherwise avoid. Uh, and he was quoted by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. She said, I'm actually excited. We are not yet through this crisis, but the chief of staff for President Obama is an old friend of mine and my husband's, and he said, you know, never waste a good crisis. And uh, this was just two days ago. Uh, primetime Fox uh, Ben Dominic says, the authoritarian left is using the permanent pandemic to achieve as many ends as they can imagine. Normal times don't produce the outcomes that the authoritarian left wants because people are not scared enough to give them the limitless power they crave. Crises are necessary. And so if, they aren't, if there aren't any on the offer, they manufacture them. And so we see a crisis, our response is how can we help people through it? 
They see a crisis, their response is how can we usurp power through it? And a quote from Henry Louis Menkin uh, wrote, the urge to save humanity is almost always only a false face for the urge to rule it. Power is what all messiahs really seek, not the chance to serve. And uh, the 33rd governor of California, Ronald Reagan said, one of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism is medicine. It's easy to disguise a medical program as a humanitarian project. If you don't stop this, behind it will come other federal programs that will invade every area of freedom until one day we will awake and find that we have socialism. That was 1961 he said that. And um, I got this email from David Lane, uh, and he um, uh, says, dangerous new variant. It appears to be mutating into a totalitarian dictatorship. (laughs) So, Another example of history, Britain, 1714, lands in Bengal and sets up a trading post that turns into a trading fort that turns into them getting involved in local politics. And they would give guns to one kingdom and guns to another kingdom. And then they would stir up ancient animosities between them. And they would break out into fighting and bloodshed. And then the British would come in to restore order and they would take control of both of those kingdoms. And then they would do it again and again and again and again until they took over all of India, a quarter of the world's population. And uh, they tried doing that in America during the Revolutionary War when the British went to the native inhabitants and promised them uh, gold for scalps if they scalped the Americans on the frontier. And it's even mentioned in our Declaration of Independence, right, that the, the British king has incited insurrection amongst the natives. And, uh, and then even uh, during the War of 1812, the British in Pensacola, Florida, gave uh, weapons to the Red Stick Creek Indians to attack the Americans. And the, you know the French pronunciation of Red Stick? Baton Rouge. Right, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, so this is where it takes place. And, um, and so the, the Indians attack this Fort Mims, Alabama, and they scalp 500 people who had surrendered. Right? And so this um, concept of you go into a country and you want to stir up division so that you can come in with a bigger agenda to take over the whole thing. Washington, in his farewell address, said, Disorders and miseries gradually incline the minds of men to seek security and repose in the absolute power of an individual who turns this disposition to the purposes of his own elevation on the ruins of public liberty. Let there be no change by usurpation. Usurpation is doing something you're not authorized to do, but people let you get away with it, and that becomes the new precedent. Uh, Usurpation, though in one instance, may be the instrument of good, It is the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. So the thing you have to watch out for, somebody that comes in, right, says, I want to do something good, but in the process, they take away the freedoms. Anyway, now let's look at Europe. You have a guy named Hegel. Isn't he handsome? And uh, (laughs) he was a professor at the University of Berlin, and he influenced Darwin, and he influenced Karl Marx. Karl Marx was a member of the Young Hegelians, a radical student group at the University of Berlin. And so Hegel came up with Hegelian dialectics. And it's a triangle. One corner is a thesis, the opposite corner is an antithesis or antithesis, and the top corner is a synthesis. It sounds complicated, but it's not. 
In other words, you start off with the status quo, everybody's happy, and you have to create a problem that's real bad so that everybody settles for your answer that's half as bad. Right? And so they would go in and they would sow discord. They'd try to find reasons to get uh, things upset. And, um, and then once you settle, you start another problem that's real bad, and everybody's happy to settle for your answer that's half as bad. Then you create another problem that's real bad, and everybody's happy to settle for your answer that's half as bad. And as each time there's a settling, the people give up a little more of their freedom to the state. So no matter what the crisis is, uh, Bavarian, Bavarian flu, a- avian flu, or, or the COVID, or uh, you know, hands up, don't shoot, or Black Lives Matter, whatever the crisis is, the answer is, is the same. Surrender a little bit more of your freedom to the state and they'll take care of you. And um, now, Karl Marx, how do you create discord? You send in agitators, agent provocateurs, community organizers, labor organizers, and they would uh, find the different groups and pit them against each other to create crises. And so he called it critical theory. This is Karl Marx, called it critical theory, that you would study a culture and identify the groups economically, religiously, ethnically, and then you would pit the groups against each other as victims and oppressors, haves and have-nots, and then when it turns into bloodshed, everybody wants somebody to come and restore order, and that's when you would usurp it. So he organized the proletariat against the bourgeois, which is the working class against the business owners. They'd organize the poor against the rich, the blacks against the whites, the Catholics against the Protestants, the Muslims against the Christians, the Hutus against the Tutsis in the Congo and Rwanda. They really don't care who the two sides are, and they really don't care what the issues are. Their goal is a destabilizing crisis that causes everybody to panic, and so they can come in and promise solutions, but they're going to usurp power in the process. Are you with me? Yes. And um, now, how did this start to, start to come to America? Uh, 1894, Chicago. Pullman Railroad Car Company has an economic downturn, can't pay their employees, and so Eugene Debs comes over, and he organizes the railroad workers to riot, right? So discord, and they do riot, and they destroy $80 million worth of railroad cars in 27 states. And since everything is going on rail, the mail, all the supplies and everything, the whole country is frozen. Could you imagine rioting and violence spreading all across the country to all these different cities with rioting and violence and everything? And and so Eugene Debs started the Socialist Party of America. And he ran for president five times, one time from prison. (laughs) And then in 1920, branching off is the Communist Party USA, and they run candidates for president every year from 1920 to 1940. Well, what happened in 1940? Franklin Roosevelt makes a treaty with Stalin during World War II. And so they say, well, why should we run our own candidates when here we got a Democrat candidate that is uh, making treaties with the Soviets? And so from that point on, they began to infiltrate the Democrat Party. And Ronald Reagan, if you can remember, had always been a Democrat. And he said, I didn't leave the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party left me. And this is when it began to happen. And so that's how it came to America initially. Let's look at Germany. They had, after World War I, a republic. 
called the Weimar Republic. So people voted for their representatives. It was a bottom-up form of government. And somebody started a party. His name was Hitler, and the party is the National Socialist Workers' Party. You know it better as Nazi. National Arbeitssozialistische Party. And uh, he had a violent branch to it, sort of an Antifa-type group called the Brown Shirts. They were nicknamed Sturmabteilung, which means stormtroopers, because they would storm into the meetings of Hitler's opponents and shout down the speakers and disrupt the meeting and have it go into chaos. And then they would lock arms and block access to buildings and lock arms across streets. Could you imagine people locking arms across streets? And then they went into the cities and they smashed the windows and looted and burned over 7,000 stores owned by Jews, trashed it in this chaos in the, in the inner cities, and then their capital got set on fire. And it points to Hitler's people doing it, but Hitler, in this confusion, blames his political opponents for an insurrection of attacking the capital. And in the confusion, he rounds up all of his political opponents and has them held without due process and has them <laughs> committed without it. And then he has them shot without a trial. And when the dust settles, Hitler didn't have any more political opponents. And Germany switched from a republic to a dictatorship. All right? So here, whether it's Abimelech going in, stirring up discord, and then hiring vain and worthless persons, or Machiavelli right, going in and hiring these people to cre- create the crises, and Hitler getting his brown shirts to create the crises. And um, this is uh, one of those pictures that, that Tucker Carlson showed, but uh, it, um, it, it shows 16 people dressed completely in, back, in black breaking into the Capitol. And it's like, there wasn't 16 people dressed in black at the rally. And so he uh, begins to talk about how the FBI does these operations where they infiltrate the groups and sort of egg them on to do stuff. Um, There's a tactic that's important for us to understand because it's used every day in the news. It's called psychological projection. It's um, where Sigmund Freud coined the term, where rude people call everyone they don't like rude. We've all met someone like that, right? Little kids do it. I'm not the mean one, you're the mean one. So it's called blame shifting, where the attacker blames the victim, and it's gotten into politics, where they accuse you of being intolerant when they're the intolerant ones. They accuse you of being hateful when they're the hateful ones, right? And and they use this every day, and you have to call them out on it, because if you back up and say, well, no, no, I'm not intolerant. They say, well, yes, you are. So you got to back up more, you got to back up more. Meanwhile, they're taking over all this space, and they're intolerant. It's like an invasive species. Um, so, uh, so what happened after World War II? Germany, France, England gave independence to their former colonies. And so they had brand new countries. Uh, India, Egypt, Israel, Romania, Bulgaria, Poland, all these brand new countries with brand new leaders. And they're climbing out of the post-World War II crisis. It looks hopeful, except the Soviet Union decided they didn't just want communism to run Russia, they wanted it to run the world. And so they began to send KGB agents into all these brand new countries to do critical theory, critical economic theory, critical race theory. And what's that? They identify all the different groups in the country, 
and they pit them as victims and oppressors, haves and have-nots, and they begin to uh, get them to fight each other. And they would organize protests that they would escalate into riots and violence and bloodshed. Why bloodshed? Because once people are being killed, the, you panic and you react emotionally, not rationally. You don't want to hear any argument when you had your friend killed, right? And so this is called fear-mongering, and it's, an, it's their goal is to get people into a state of panic and fear. Why? Because when people are fearful, they will trade freedom for security. And um, so, uh, so they would uh, identify the different groups, pit them against each other, and then have the protests, the riots, and then they would co-opt the media with bribes and threats to blame the new leader of the new country for all of the problems. So it was called a psychological operation or psyops, but they would do this thing where they would have the media blame the new leader of the new country, and then they would nurture weak links in the military. And when the country gets panicky enough, they would do a coup or a rigged election and replace the leader with a Soviet puppet. And then the violence would stop and everybody would sigh relief for a little while until they realized they just gave up the farm and now they're ruled by a Soviet dictator. And um, so all these countries fell this way. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and so forth. And this is called behind the Iron Curtain. And uh, now Mao Zedong added an extra feature to this. Instead of it being the Hegel and the Marx where you thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? You have it's a status quo, then you create a crisis. So Mao Zedong comes up with the idea of a continual revolution. So you don't just do one and then to, to seize power and now that you're in power. No, it's a, called a continuous panic, sort of like a continuous pandemic, right? You want to keep something going and going. You want to milk that thing for all it's worth. You want to keep people in fear. And now Truman does nothing. He thinks that the United Nations he helped form in San Francisco, uh, would bring world peace. But the next president is Eisenhower, and he's faced with a choice. He can do nothing and let these countries fall, or he can fight fire with fire. So a quote from Eisenhower, the United Nations has seemed to be two distinct things to the two worlds divided by the Iron Curtain. To the free world, it seems that it should be a constructive forum. To the communist world, it has been a sounding board for their propaganda, a weapon to be exploited in what? Spreading disunity and confusion. So Eisenhower is faced with Iran siding with the Soviet Union and nationalizing their oil. And you think, well, big deal. Well, wait a second. Britain has no oil fields. So in 1908, Britain formed the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. You know it better as BP. British Petroleum, right, is really the Anglo-Iranian oil company. And so when Iran seizes all the oil and sides with the Soviet Union, Britain is having an oil shortage. So they appeal to Eisenhower, and Eisenhower, 1953, approves the first CIA operation to overthrow a country's leader. It's called Operation Ajax. And our guys do the same thing only in reverse. So the CIA operative on the ground is Kermit Roosevelt Jr., the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. So he is an expert in foreign languages. He goes to Tehran and he recruits mobsters and gangsters and radical imams and they attack mosques and they have protests and they co-opt the media with bribes and threats. And when the country's panicky enough, they come in and put Mossadegh under house arrest, lock him away for the rest of his life where he dies and they replaced him with the Shah. 
who loved America because we put him in, and he did have a rightful claim to the throne. Well, the CIA did the same thing in Guatemala 1954, and the Congo 1960, Dominican Republic, Vietnam, Brazil, Chile 1973. And what was their choice? They could do nothing and let the communists take over or try to fight fire. And so at the same time, Brezhnev was helping Yasser Arafat to take over uh, the Middle East, you know, start the PLO. And Brezhnev was helping Castro take over Cuba. And so all of this is going on. They have hundreds of coups and coup attempts in Latin South America and in Africa. This is called the Cold War. And these tactics have been perfected and perfected and perfected. The only difference this time around is they're being used on us on our own soil. And um, anyway, I just thought I'd come and give you a little encouragement tonight. You know. <laughs> I, I've, I've got more stuff here. One of their tactics is they, um, they want to bankrupt the country into socialism. So remember the fear and the free stuff? And people say, I don't need free stuff. Well, if they can destroy the economy, then you're needful, and then you're happy to take free stuff. And so it's called the Great Reset. And um, uh, so Lenin had to get rid of all the kulaks, who are the middle-class farmers. And um, so uh, this is the uh, Chicago Tribune cartoon in 1934 when Stalin is in Russia. It says, plan of action for U.S., spend, spend, spend under the guise of recovery. Bust the government, blame the capitalists for the failure, junk the Constitution, and declare a dictatorship. And on the side it says it worked in Russia. So the idea is you do these stimulus programs where you're spending trillions of dollars, but your goal is not to stimulate. Your goal is to spend so much money that you make the dollar worthless and everybody's savings evaporates and economically it collapses and then they can come in and say, okay, we're going to give you a new Fed coin or something, but now we're going to track everybody's transactions, you know, because they, they need to, so it's, it's getting rid of the middle class. And um, anyway, so this is interesting. A KGB agent named Yuri Bezmenov defects, 1980, comes to America and he spills the beans. He says, people think a KGB like James Bond. He goes, nah, our job is to go into a country and identify the public opinion molders. Categorize, economically, racially, remember all that? And, um, and they categorize them uh, with media, with the pulpit, with education, with all these different things, and lobby them, invite them to your socialist parties and sort of move them in a socialist direction. And he says, that period takes 20 years, and once you get control of the education and so forth, when people go through it, they never come out. In other words, it's so thorough, you can take them to the Soviet Union, show them a concentration camp, and they won't believe their eyes. He says the next is a destabilizing phase where you get the country to spend and bankrupt itself, and then you get a crisis, uh, some incident that you can fan a flame all across the country, and then when the people panic, you do your coup or your rigged election, and then you have this period of normalization where suddenly the violence stops, and people think that it's going back to normal, but actually you're just getting used to not having the freedoms you had before. Now, the infiltrating of the churches, I thought this was interesting. 1963, a congressman in Florida, Albert Herlong, reads a list of 45 tactics the communists use to take over countries. And one of them is infiltrate the churches and replace revealed religion with social religion. And so this is the story of Manning Johnson, Black man becomes a communist for 10 years, even runs for Congress in New York as a communist. And then he realizes that they don't want to help his community. They just want to use them to sow division. So he leaves and he writes a book 
And Archibald Roosevelt, the son of Teddy Roosevelt, writes the foreword to the book. And he talks about them coming into the minority communities, trying to get them to spit on the Bible and kick it like the communists did in Russia. You know, they'd make him. But he says that the people in the minority communities were too attached to the Bible. So they decided that they would change the gospel. And he said this, the new line went like this. Jesus, the carpenter, was a worker like the communists. He was against the money changers, the capitalists, the exploiters of the day. That is why he drove them from the temple. Communists are the modern-day fighters against capitalists or money changers. If Jesus were living today, he would be persecuted like the communists. So forget the gospel that we're all sinners and a just God deserves to judge us, but God in his love sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sins. Forget the gospel. He's just an activist, right? And... Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, I call upon America to be more careful with its trust. Prevent those from falsely using the struggle for social justice to lead you down a false road. And um, amen. Now, um, I, I, I don't see a clock anywhere, so I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. Am I, am I doing okay? Yeah. I, uh, my wife used to travel with me a lot, and she'd be in the back of the room and tell me when it's time to quit. And uh, all right, well, um, well, let me go on a little bit more. So I got Saul Linsky, and, and he talks about community organizers' job is to stir up crises in communities. Matter of fact, Saul Linsky dedicated his book to, Satan. right, to Lucifer. Here it is, or acknowledgement to. It says, lest we forget an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement. I've got a copy of the book. It's right there on the front page. Um, uh, the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment did it so effectively he's won his own kingdom. Lucifer. Why? Because Lucifer sowed discord in heaven. So that's the attitude. You destroy families or churches and governments by going in and sowing discord. And the Bible says you forgive, right? You, and um, so you see all these rioting and so forth taking place. Now, this is interesting. COVID response was what? The first thing was let criminals out of jail. I mean, really? You couldn't, like, move them somewhere? And, um, and then crime goes up. It's like, duh, didn't see that coming. And then some people move out of the big cities. Well, who moves out? Well, maybe those with families and certainly those that can afford to move out. Okay, pro-family, maybe a little bit better off. They tend to belong to a particular political party. Well, who's left in the city? Well, more people dependent on government entitlements. Well, they tend to belong more to a different political party. And then the COVID response was shut down businesses and let rioters destroy businesses. And, and then so pro-business people move out of the big cities. And then shut down churches, and that's where social conservatives gather. And the, then you close the schools, and these kids that have been indoctrinated with hate America are allowed free time to riot. Net COVID result was more people of one political party move out of the big city or the state and leaving the other party with monopoly control over the city politics. And in election years, whoever controls the big city ends up winning the entire state, and whoever wins the state gets all the electoral votes for the state, and the president is elected by electoral votes. There's a clear advantage to one political party by letting violence go up in the cities and letting people be fearful and so forth. So... Um, there's other stuff I'm going to skip past for the sake of time, the whole deconstruction thing where they want to destroy the history, and China did that, Pol Pot, and um, uh, Gramsci talks about destroying culture. And uh, So this is interesting. Uh, how to brainwash a nation. So sales, 
in the 1800s was Wells Fargo Wagon and Sears Catalog. And to sell something, they would list every feature about a sewing machine that you could imagine. But then in the early 1900s, you had magazine advertising. And people would buy things not knowing anything about it. The classic is Crisco. Nobody knew what it was. But they had these slick ads with beautiful food, happy mothers, happy families, and everybody bought it. They even made up a term, vegetable-based. But still, nobody knew it was made of. It was so effective, it put out of business the lard industry. They used to render fat from animals and sell it, right? And so, you know what Crisco is made out of? Cottonseed oil, right? Deep south, they would, you know, harvest cotton and they get all the, they had mountains of these little black seeds and they would crush them into this mucky brown oil that they would use in factories and machinery. Nobody ate that stuff. And this guy decided he would bleach it and boil it and then package it and, and they sell it. And we've all eaten it, right? And so we go from knowing everything about it to buying something because it looks like everybody's using it. And, um, and that goes along with keeping up with the Joneses, where you buy something not because you've done your research, you just see everybody else having it. And, um, and then we see the sensationalizing with the publishing, with media, and um, Randolph Hearst. Spanish-American War, and it's called the Yellow Press, but down, uh, the famous saying is William Randolph Hearst, and he's got a uh, mansion, you know, uh, he sent Frederick Remington, his illustrator, down to Cuba, and he told him, you furnish the pictures, and I'll furnish the war. Now, there was injustice going on in Cuba, and the uh, they had a guy named Count Weiler, and he's down there in the corner there, and he was going to crush this rebellion going on in Cuba. And they had concentration camps, and hundreds of thousands of people were dying. Uh, but it's this idea that um, the country wasn't involved, didn't care about Cuba, but the newspapers decided that they were going to um, make it an issue. And it, it was. And it was a good thing to rescue the people of Cuba. We should do that again. And, um, and then we see 1938, there's a radio drama, War of the Worlds, and Orson Welles is the radio actor, and he says, we interrupt this program to announce that New Jersey is being invaded by Martians. <laughs> Everyone in the country panicked and freaked out and ran outside looking in the sky. And it was a phenomenon that now, not just marketing a product and people don't know what's in it, but they're seeing that everybody's doing it. And then we got the media, uh, and with newspapers, this panic of fear. This comes together with Joseph Goebbels in Germany with Hitler. And he realizes with the fear of the war, and with everybody, he gets 100,000 people together in a coliseum. And in the front, they would start to give the Hitler salute. And everybody would see everybody else giving the Hitler salute, and they would feel pressured to give the Hitler salute, and then somebody would see you giving it, and then they would give it. And before you know it, they brainwashed a whole country because of fear and because it looks like everybody's doing it. And um, so we began to do the same thing in America. And here is uh, the Army and Air Force had a motion picture service. Did you know that? What are they doing? Are they just going to entertain people? No, they realize that there's power there, and they would actually have sign-up tables in the lobby of movie theaters to sign people up uh, to join the, the military. And, but it was good, because we were getting our country to defend. 
Uh, but this idea of manipulating perception is something that is studied and studied and studied. And one, you've heard the term gaslighting. How many have heard that term? Uh, so Ingrid Bergman, a movie where she's the uh, niece of a famous actress who was given some jewels and uh, dies and her, all of her stuff's in the attic, but the door's locked and uh, she inherits the house and it's in London and there's a guy that wants the jewels and so he befriends her and courts her and marries her. And then he, you know, 1940s movies, he would put her to bed in, in her room and, uh, and he would uh, go outside for a walk, but he would walk around the block and climb up like Mary Poppins, all those houses in London are close together, and walk across and go through the attic window, and he'd turn the gas lamp on in the attic, and when he turned on in the attic, it would get dimmer in her bedroom. And she would tell him, well, you know, whenever you go for a walk, the light in my bedroom gets dimmer. He goes, oh, your eyes are playing tricks on you. You're seeing things. You're going crazy. Matter of fact, we're going to take you to a psychiatrist, and he's about to commit her to an insane asylum, and then he can get into the attic all he wants. And then the hero of the movie watches the guy walk down the street and turn the lamp on and catches him. But it's this idea of you manipulating the perception. And it's gone from just manipulating one woman's perception to the whole country. This idea of controlling the inputs that you're getting. And um, it, it goes back to Athens with the theater. And uh, so Athens was a democracy with citizens. And if you have an agenda... How do you pitch your agenda to a whole city? Uh, it, through theater. Uh, so they would put on plays, comedies, tragedies, satires, where they would ridicule and buffoon certain points of view and honor and extol other points of view. And so you'd leave the theater saying, I don't want to be like that poor guy that was made fun of. Uh, and this other guy, he was noble. And so from that time till now, theater is always political. Think of your favorite sitcom or movie or show. There's a character you like, you identify with. They're cute, they're funny, they're the hero. And as this series goes on, this character begins to make morally compromising decisions. Little lying here, little lust there, little cheating, little revenge. And you find yourself apologizing for that actor. Well, I know that James Bond is with a woman he's not married to, but he's about to save the world. So can we get on with the story? So it minimizes something that used to be a, an important character quality, marital fidelity, right? And now, uh, so then, again, how do you manipulate people? Uh, it's called PSYOP. So we would drop pamphlets during World War II on the enemy, and the pamphlets would say, your side is already lost, and it would just mess with their minds. And they did the same thing to us, Tokyo Rose. And she had her nice voice, and she would talk in English, and she would tell all the Americans how terrible they were and so forth. And so this was studied more, and it was um, during the Cold War, Alan Dulles had what's called Operation Mockingbird. And uh, Carl Bernstein of the Watergate uh, thing, he talked about this in a 1977 Rolling Stone magazine, that the CIA would plant stories in all the major news media outlets to influence the country at that time to mobilize us against, you know, the communists. But he admitted that this is the project that the CIA would do. To, so we'd see stories in the news, but they would be stories that would be planted and, um, and so we see that it's now gone online with big tech and the different articles of Twitter and Facebook and how they've swayed uh, elections. Uh, Sun Tzu in China, 5th century BC, wrote Art of War. And he said, supreme excellence consists in breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting. 
So you think, okay, you got battles in your fighting strategy, and he goes, but a really, really good general, he can psych out his enemy mentally, and the enemy will surrender without even a fight. That's the supreme general. Well, then it's called fifth generation warfare, where now you get your enemy to surrender without them even being aware that there was a war. And that's what we're in. It's called fifth generation warfare, that they're taking away our freedoms the same way if they would have come into an army and take away it, but now we're letting them do it. And um, anyway, um, so I'll, I'll speed past this. So Korean War, young guys go in loving America. They're captured. We rescue them. They hate America. They said, what happened to these guys? They went through something called brainwashing. Comes from the Buddhist concept of cleansing the mind and the brain, right? And so they would put these guys in isolation. That's like the worst punishment, uh, isolation. And they would uh, go through deprivation, you know, some starving and so forth. And until these guys craved having relationships with other people. And they just craved wanting to get back to normal so bad. And then they would pull them into a room with six chairs, but the chairs were already filled with guys who had caved. And this one guy would come, but before he would be accepted in the group, he had to confess his whiteness. He had to confess his evil association with Western capitalism and that he was fighting for the evil capitalists of the West. And when he finally did, then he would be accepted in their group. And it was so effective that uh, they, they studied it afterwards. And um, uh, it's also called the Stockholm Syndrome and so forth. But you put, so taking this nationally, you put people through isolation. Uh, so much so that they crave, crave, crave things getting back to normal. But they dangle out there. But before you can get back to normal, you got to do this. You got to take this. You got to do this, right? And, um, uh, and it's manipulating a very strong human desire to be accepted in a group. Everybody, what's the, we, what's the worst thing? It's being rejected. And everybody like, wants to be friended and liked and followed. And nobody wants to be unfriended and blocked and banned, right? We, we crave acceptance. Well, they've learned how to manipulate that craving. And um, uh, this, uh, in some countries, it's called honor-shame culture. But in, uh, they did an, an experiment on college campuses. It's called the Solomon Ash Conformity Experiment uh, in the 1960s and 70s. They would pull eight students into a room and... Seven had been paid ahead of time to be actors. One was a naive participant. And the teacher would put two cards on the front desk. One card had one line and the other three lines. One longer, one shorter, one the same. And, um, and one by one, the paid actors would stand up and convincingly say that the shorter line was equal to the other line. By the time it got around to the eighth naive participant, 30% of them would deny their own eyes to fit in with the group. Right? And um, now if one, just one uh, objected, it went from 30% down to 5%. But the power of being accepted in a group is, is uh, called the spiral of silence. They studied this, where people will self-censor their views if they think they are in the minority. And they'll, and they'll keep censoring more and more and more until they don't. Now why? This is powerful. Here's Peter. He was with Jesus three years. He promised Jesus that he would die before he would deny him. And then a couple hours later, Peter's around the fire, and some unnamed girl goes up to him and says, hey, weren't you with him? And Peter looks over at the group, and he doesn't want to be a, a disapproved of by this group, right? There's this, and he denies Jesus. The power of the group. 
And um, now, for Peter's sake, after the resurrection, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he boldly stood up for Jesus to the Sanhedrin, and they said, we gave you strict orders. The government's telling you, do not have church, do not teach in his name. Peter replies, we must obey God rather than man. So the early believers got together, and they didn't say, Lord, stop the persecution. They said, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word. They prayed for boldness in the midst of it. That's why I love Pastor Rob. He's got boldness. Uh, Jeremiah says, be not afraid of their faces. And, um, and they had uh, these guys that didn't kneel, and they asked him afterwards why he didn't kneel. And he says, well, I'm a Christian. I only kneel to Jesus. And um, so they're manipulating your desire, a real human desire to be accepted in a group. They're manipulating it. And Jesus says, how can you believe which receive honor one from another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? God is calling us to forsake acceptance by the group and only care about acceptance by him. And, um, and so the, um, anyway, uh, I've got, I go through all the world history that I'm not going to do tonight. And, um, and the devil offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, and Jesus, of course, doesn't. And, um, but the very first prophecy is God tells the serpent, he says that uh, the seed of the woman uh, will bruise your head, but, or will crush your head, but you'll bruise his heel. Right? The first prophecy, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will bruise the, his heel. And it happens simultaneously on the cross. So the same the devil thinks, okay, I just crucified Jesus. And Jesus says, it's finished. And the devil's like, uh, what's finished? He just, the devil just got the Jews and Gentiles to sacrifice the Lamb of God so that his blood could be shed to forgive everyone's sins. And so now everybody in the world has an opportunity to have fellowship with God again. And the devil got his authority crushed. So all the devil can do is accuse you of being a sinner before God. And once you admit, I am a sinner, and Jesus paid for all my sins. And then from God's point of view, it's, uh, he's a just God, he has to judge you, but he judged you in Jesus, and you're approaching him through Jesus, and so the devil lost his job. He's cast out, he's cast out of heaven, right? He doesn't have anything to do. He says, well, Lord, he, he's a sinner, you gotta judge him. Uh, he's like, well, I already did in Jesus. So, um, but it happened simultaneous. That's the point I'm getting at. The same time that the devil thought he won, he lost. The same crises that are being used to get people into fear and panic, to give up their freedoms, that same crisis is going to turn people to Christ. And we're going to see a great end time revival. So, um, uh, so last thought is, um, I read through lots of history, you can obviously tell, and um, <laughs> And one thing that is a standard is every generation faces a crisis, right? Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, bubonic plague. I mean, there's always a crisis, and the crisis is an opportunity for the people that are alive at that time to respond. And I thought of the example of a freshman chemistry class. You have a beaker with a solution, and you pour in a catalyst, and there's a reaction, and some stuff precipitates and gets heavy and goes to the bottom, and other stuff gets effervescent and bubbly and comes to the top. 
And so the time period that we're living in is the solution in the beaker. The crisis for our time period is the catalyst that's poured in, and it causes a reaction. And some people drop out. They get fearful. They get afraid. They run away. They hide. And other people get effervescent, right? Like the early church. The Lord, grant us boldness in the midst of this crisis. And so this is our turn. And, uh, you know, you think, here's God. He exists for eternity. He makes everything, and everything obeys him. I mean, just think of it. Imagine existing for eternity upon eternity upon eternity upon eternity. makes everything. I was watching uh, the Hubble telescope video on YouTube. They launched it in the 1990s. In 2003, they focused it on a spot in the sky that there was nothing. The spot was so small, if you take a grain of sand, hold it between your fingers against the night sky, they focused it for 10 days. There was nothing there. After 10 days, they developed the images. In that little spot where there was nothing was 10,000 galaxies with a trillion stars in each galaxy. And the largest star they found is Stevenson 2-18. It is so large, if you were to put it in our solar system, it would engulf the orbit of Saturn, the sixth planet from the sun. We're the third planet from the sun. Could you imagine one star that big? And God made it all. And, and you think, what's, what's a star? What's, it, what's galaxies anyway? They're just rocks. Big rocks, small rocks, vaporized rocks. A rock cannot love you. So here's God. He exists for eternity. He makes everything, and everything obeys him. And it's almost like, been there, done that. I can make enormous things. I can make tiny I can make and, and everything obeys. At some point in eternity past, God said, you know, I would really like someone in my image that could love me. Now it gets interesting. Because love, by definition, must be voluntary. The moment it's forced, it evaporates. The moment God would force you to love him, he himself would know he is forcing you to love him, and he would know your response is not a true voluntary love response. So he hides himself behind creation, because if he ever revealed himself, here he is making galaxies. If he were, every single atom in your body would fall flat, worship him, and he wouldn't know if you're worshiping him, because he is just incomprehensibly awesomely powerful, or if you had made a willful decision to love him. So I use the example of a billionaire has a son who goes to college, and uh, he drives up in his Lamborghini, his gold rings, his Rolex watch. He's going to have every girl on campus wanting to meet him. But if he lays all that aside, and he drives up in a clunker with holes in his jeans, the uppity girls are going to ignore him. But there's one girl, and she likes to study with them in the library. They get to become friends. And she takes criticism from her clique because she's hanging around this loser, right? But they fall in love, and they get engaged. And then he says to the girl, I want to take you back to meet my dad. And they're like driving up to this mansion castle, and this girl's like, whoa, he didn't tell me about all this. He knows that she loves him for him, not because of all of his stuff. If God would have, if Jesus would have come in all of his glory, every single ladder climber would say, oh, yeah, yeah. No, he laid that aside and he came humbled as a man so that we would have the free will choice to love him. And then the last part is God is just and he can't help it. He's just. What does that mean? That means he has to judge every sin. If he does not judge a sin, his silence would effectively be giving consent to the sin and if God gives consent to sin, he's no longer a just God. 
Wedding ceremonies, remember, the pastor would say, anybody against this wedding, speak now or forever hold your peace. If you're at the wedding and you're sitting there silent, your silence is giving consent to the wedding. If there are sins going on and God is silent and not judging them, he's effectively giving consent to the sin. And if God gives consent to sin, he's no longer a just God. He denies his just nature. He denies himself. And he cannot deny himself, so he is going to judge so here, he makes us, he gives us a free choice to love him or not, but if we decide to, to sin, his just nature is he has to judge us, but he had a plan. And the plan is his own son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the word of God would become flesh and be the lamb to take the judgment of a just God that we deserve in our place. And so when I read the... Isaac and Abraham are going to the top of Mount Moriah. And Isaac says, Father, we have the wood for the fire for the sacrifice, and we have the coals for the fire, but, but where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says, Son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And it can be read two ways. God will have a ram up in a bush up there, or God will provide himself as the sacrifice. And that's what happened. Jesus the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of God, became the sacrifice, became the Lamb. So God could still be completely just, and he judges every sin, but he's completely love, and that he provided his own Son to be the Lamb to take the judgment for the sin. And Jesus, out of love for the Father and out of love for you and me, took the wrath of God. You know, in the book of Revelation, it's God pouring out the vials of judgment. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, and the angels cry out, Righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. What's happening there? It's the final judgment. God is judging all the sins that he didn't judge along the way. In that sense, Jesus had the book of Revelation judgment poured out on his head. He took the judgment for every sin that everybody would ever do upon himself on the cross. That's why he was sweating drops of blood. And if you think of it, I'm, I got a degree in accounting. I like things that balance. An eternal being, Jesus, who's innocent, suffering for a finite period of time is equal to all of us finite beings who are guilty suffering for an eternal period of time. Let me say that again. An eternal being who's innocent suffering for a finite period of time, right, the day on the cross and whatever happened those three days, is equal to all of us finite beings who are guilty suffering for an eternal period of time. Jesus literally suffered the equivalent of eternal damnation in all of our places. It says, it says, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. He experienced that day on the cross as if it was a thousand years. Infinity times finite equals finite times infinity. Jesus, we sang that song, he's the only one. He's the only one that could have done it. And he put it all down for you and me. And so people say, I don't need Jesus. Like, dude, don't you understand? God has to judge every sin you've ever done because if he doesn't judge it, his silence would be giving consent to it. If he gives consent, he's no longer a just God. He denies himself. He's not going to deny himself. He's going to judge every sin. You can stand there and take it, or you can approach him through the lamb, that the judgment has been paid. So as long as you think your, your relationship with God is based on you being good enough, you'll always have this nagging thought in the back of your head, did I do enough? Your own conscience will tell you, no, you didn't. But the moment you put all your faith in the lamb. So tonight, we talked about world history. We talked about crisis, people getting the government usurping power uh, on a global level. But it's in that crisis people are turning to Christ. So turn to Christ tonight. 
Tonight, if you've not yet done so, approach God through the Lamb. The just God, the perfect, awesome, incomprehensibly powerful God that's eternal and created everything loves you. And he gave his son to take the punishment for all of your sins. So I'm going to turn it back over to Pastor Rick. I love it when, I love it when Bill unpacks all of the history because there's nothing new under the sun. We're just reliving this cycle, right? And you thought you were, we, we've been, for some of us, we've been being gaslighted. I think I'm losing my mind. Is really what's happening happening? So wow, what, what a blessing. But Bill didn't leave it there. He brought us to the foot of the cross for the hope that we have in Jesus. That's why we're here. We wanna be able to speak to the, the, what's going on in our world, but our hope is in Jesus and the people that are, their back's against the wall. They know something. Life is coming apart at the seams. This is a great time. As I said, we've baptized 250 people in the last six months. People are coming to Christ. And this crisis is coming. And you guys are the effervescence that is bubbling to the top and speaking out. And because there's a whole world out there that is just sinking and just giving up. They're just rolling over. And they're telling us, why are you guys even speaking up? This stuff is so much bigger than you. Well, it's not bigger than our God. It's bigger than us. But it's not bigger than our God. Be remembering Jesus' body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us in the midst of all this chaos. It's easy to lose sight. And Jesus said, every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Do it in remembrance of me and what Jesus has done for us. Let's take the bread. And let's thank Jesus. Jesus, thank you so much. On that last night when you were going to go pay the price for the sins of the world, but more personally, Lord, for each one of our sins that we've ever committed, that we're struggling with now, in the future, whatever it is, Lord, you paid the complete price, but you allowed your body to be broken, to be brutalized for our sin so that we wouldn't have to pay that price before you that we would be accepted in your sight. Jesus, thank you for giving your precious sinless body to suffer the abuse that we should endure for our own sin and failure. Let's take the bread together. And as we take the cup, the symbol of your blood, Lord Jesus, that poured from your body you said there is no remission of sins, no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And yet, Lord Jesus, your blood can cleanse us from all sin. There's nothing that your blood cannot wash away. Cleansing our conscience, cleansing our mind, realizing that your life paid the price in death by pouring out your blood that we might have your everlasting life. So Jesus, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you for your blood that was shed for us. Let's take the, the cup together. Lord Jesus, you're so good. We worship you tonight in spirit and in truth. And we pray that you would fill us, your servants, with boldness to speak your word 
and to stand for the liberty that you have given us in our walk with you and in our nation. Come what may in these troublesome times and the crisis for our nation. Lord, help us be courageous as we trust you. In your name, amen.